In John chapter 4, Jesus describes the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. Verses 23 and 24. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. Now for the next few minutes, stay tuned to worship in spirit and truth with Pastor Jeff Scoggin. Job was a man who lived long ago in a land called Uz. And Job was not only fabulously wealthy, but he was also highly respected, uh, blessed with many children, and the Bible says he was blameless. doesn't say he was sinless. It says he was blameless. Job cared so much about being right with God that even whenever his kids had a party, the next morning he would sacrifice, make sacrifices to God just in case they might have sinned. He would do it on their behalf. That's how much he cared. Not only did Job's family and friends and the people around him love and respect Job, but God was also impressed with Job. God highly respected and loved Job. In fact, he respected Job so much that when he came together for a meeting with the angels and Satan showed up, he said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Job doesn't know God said that, right? He doesn't know that even yet. How would you like someday to go to heaven and find out that in a meeting of angels, God had said something like that about you? Wouldn't that be something? Have you considered my servant Larry? He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Wouldn't that be neat, Larry? To know that God had said that about you in a meeting of angels? Have you considered my servant Albert? Have you considered my servant? Wow, that would be quite the compliment. Well, God did say that about Job, and, and how did Satan respond? With a sneer. In chapter 1, verse 9. Job chapter 1, verse 9, which we just read part of. Does Job fear God for nothing, says Satan? Satan replied, have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands, so his flocks and herds have spread throughout the land. But stretch forth your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. And what does God say to Satan? Very well then. Everything he has is in your hands. Now remember, God respects Job. God considers Job blameless. He loves Job. Considering that, why in the world do you think that God would allow Satan to do something like this? 
Job was as good of a person as you could find on planet Earth. And God just sicked the dogs on him. Go ahead, Satan. Do whatever you want to Job's family and his property. And Satan goes out and he invents the most cruel scenario you can imagine. He, in perfect timing, he lines up the, the one servant after another to come back and report to Job one disaster after another. Bam, bam, bam. Job gets hit with the news of disaster. Chapter thir or verse 13. One day, this is what happened. One day, when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby, and the Sabaeans attacked and carried them off. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. What's Job's heart doing right now? It's, it's sunk, right? I mean, that is terrible news. But in the distance... What does Job see? While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The fire of God fell from the sky and burned up the sheep and the servants, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. Now's what Job's thinking. Two in a row. That's as bad as it gets, isn't it? While he was still speaking, another messenger came, and the Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and carried them off. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. You think he's beginning to wonder if something's going on here? And while he was still speaking, yet another messenger came, and he said, and Job's here thinking, what do I have left to lose? That was everything, he thought. In the first words, that sermon, that, that from that servant must have just destroyed Job. Another messenger came and said, your sons and daughters were feasting. And drinking wine at the oldest brother's house when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It has collapsed on them and they are dead. And I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. God and his angels meet again sometime later. And Satan shows up again. And I imagine there may have been some pride in God's voice when he says to Satan again, <laughs> Have you considered my servant Job? After all of this has happened, have you considered my servant Job? <laughs> because he's still blameless. He's still upright. And in chapter 2, verse 4, what does Satan say? He sneers back at God. Skin for skin. A man will give all he has for his own hand, but stretch forth your hand and strike his, his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to his face. To your face. So God allowed Satan to strike Job himself. With sores or, or boils. From the top of his head to the bottom of his feet, there was not a way that he could stand, sit, or lie that wasn't excruciating. And God, who loved, respected, and considered Job blameless, let it all happen. And worse yet, God's the one who brought up the subject in the first place. Did you notice Satan didn't bring up Job? 
God did. What does God possibly have to gain from this cruel game? I, I remember visiting an ancient castle when I was a kid in Jordan. And it was a, you know, it was really tall wall. And the walls were probably as, as wide as this church is. And, uh, you know, easily a dozen soldiers or more could march abreast along this wall. Well, the, the tour guide that we were with told us a story about uh, one of the ancient kings who ruled here, this castle, and how he was so proud of the discipline of his army that when his friends came one time, he marched his army along, and when they came to the edge, he didn't stop them. He let a hundred of them march over the edge to their deaths just to show how loyal his army was to him. Was God doing something like this to Job? Was God making sport of Job just to see how loyal he was? What, what possible redeeming factors could be at play here? Let me ask you another question to look at it from a different angle, though. Anybody, everybody believe Job's going to be in heaven someday? Of course. When Job gets to heaven, and he asks God about this, because I guarantee you he's going to. <laughs> when Job gets to heaven, he asks God about this. Do you think that he is going to be disappointed or disgusted or angry at God's answer? I see some people's head shaking. Why? Why do you think no? I don't think so. And I think it's because God actually had a good reason for doing it. You see, I believe that there is a universe of God's created beings who are watching with intense interest this great controversy between God and Satan. We get one of those clues right there. God just had a meeting of angels. Apparently, these beings were coming from different places in the universe because Satan was one of them. And he was at earth. And he came to this meeting of angels. Hebrews 11, 3 says that through faith we understand that the worlds, plural, were framed by the word of God. There is more going on in this universe than just us, God, and Satan. When you put this story in that broader context, some possibilities begin to emerge of what might have been going on. Satan has put God on trial before the universe. And God is busy making his case and disproving Satan's case. Satan says that God is cruel. God asserts that he, in fact, is love. Satan asserts that God is creating prisoners. God says that he is creating people with freedom to choose. So God, in every possible way, is trying to prove Satan wrong. Because there are some who wonder if he just might be right. Remember, he convinced a third of the angels. 
God, I don't believe, allows gratuitous suffering. God has no stomach for the pain of those he loves. The only thing that will allow God to allow his children to suffer is if he can save someone's life by doing it. The eternal life of those he loves is more important to God than their comfort. And that makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, if you have a, a child who's about to jump in front of a speeding bus and all you can get is their hair, you're going to do it, aren't you? You jerk that kid back and, and he screams, Dad, why did you pull my hair? Do you like hurting me? And of course, that's ludicrous. And hopefully when you explain to the kid that you, know, you didn't want to hurt him, but that was all you could do to save his life, he's going to be grateful, you hope, right? Thank you for being willing to hurt me in order to save my life. Well, Job, though, didn't, apparently didn't need any lessons of obedience taught to him, did he? Job wasn't the one being pulled away out of the path of the speeding bus. But someday, I believe that Job is going to be surrounded by people thanking him for going through what he went through because their lives were saved because of it. With God, all suffering has an eternal benefit. But we don't only suffer for our own benefit. We may be called upon to suffer for the benefit of others. And like Job, we may not know why until we get to heaven someday. That is possible. Thankfully, though, God does promise that he will never, ever let more happen to us than we can bear. God knew that Satan, I mean, that, that Job could take it. Even though Job died not knowing the background of his story. But despite not knowing, knowing what was going on, Job maintained his integrity. Chapter 1, verse 22. This part we just skipped over, and I want to come back to it. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Apparently, it, according to this verse, it's a sin to accuse God of sin. Makes sense, doesn't it? Well, Job, Job later, we'll see, does come dangerously close to making some accusations against God. But in the end, God approves of the way that Job handled the terrible situation. By the way, I find it interesting that, that uh, Satan did not destroy Job's wife. Remember that? He murdered all of his children, but not his wife. Why do you think that was? Any idea? I think we get a hint in the story. I think it's because Satan knew that he had an ally in Job's wife. And that he could use her to tempt Job into giving up his faith in God. And, and his wife did say, in essence, not her words, mine, but give up this holier-than-thou attitude. Didn't she say that? Curse God and die. Those were her words. Husbands and wives can have a powerful influence on each other's spirituality, can't they? 
Sure they can. Please, please don't ever let Satan spare you so that you can work for him. Uh, this is just talking about his wife. Husbands can do the same thing. Despite his wife, though, how did we already see that Job reacted after he got all this bad news? Verse 20. At this, Job got up, tore his robe, shaved his head, which were profound expressions of, of grief in his day. Then he fell to the ground in anger. Is that what it says? Then he fell to the ground in, in frustration and disappointment and discouragement. Is that what it says? He fell to the ground in worship. And he praised the name of the Lord. Could you do that? I honestly don't know if I could. I've never been there. I would be afraid to say, yeah, I could do that. I honestly don't know if I could do that. Well, Job had three close friends. The Bible calls them friends. <laughs> And they had heard about Job's troubles, and they came to comfort him. And when they arrived at his home, they could barely recognize him. He was in such bad shape. And they, and they could tell that he was in such pain, they were, they were pretty much speechless. And besides, I understand the, the culture of the day was for the host to speak first anyway, and Job didn't speak for seven days. And his friends just sat there beside him in silence, which is probably the best thing they did the entire time. I mean, think about it. When somebody is in pain and suffering, sometimes the best thing you can do for them is just be there, right? Well, finally, Job did speak, and his words were not happy and joyful words. See, I'm contrasting this. Job fell to the ground in worship. But when Job began to speak to his friends, his words were not happy and joyful words. There are some people, usually who have never suffered themselves, who think that when Paul in the Bible tells us that we are to rejoice in suffering, that means we are to rejoice about our suffering. That we should be happy when we suffer. I personally don't think that makes much sense, and I don't think it's what Paul meant. Job had already praised the name of the Lord. But no one, including God, I don't think, means for his people to be anything less than authentic. Yeah, I, I, I had a nasty flu this week. I was not happy about it. I did not enjoy it. I did not rejoice about my suffering. But I remember thinking of Paul when he said rejoice in suffering. And so I said, okay. <laughs> and I thanked God for how good he has been to me. Because whether I have the flu or not, God has been good to me. Followed immediately by a request to, can you take this thing away? <laughs> <You know? laughs> it's not wrong to suffer and not enjoy it. That is not a sin to not be happy 
about suffering. Suffering is cause for sadness. But Job was careful that he did not sin by blaming God for his suffering. That's part of the difference there. In his first words to his friends, he cursed the day he was born. And he, he gave vent to his feelings of discouragement and pain. And I, and I think if Job had not been discouraged and even angry at times, that I would have a lot harder time believing the story. Somebody once said, an abnormal reaction to an abnormal situation is normal behavior. Apparently, though, Job's friends had come to him with some preconceptions about the reasons that Job was suffering. They traveled there already in their minds having a pretty good idea of why this was going on. Did they have any idea why this was going on? Of course not. Job didn't know of what happened in heaven, neither did his friends. But his friends thought they knew. These preconceptions that his friends had were still ideas that were prevalent even in Jesus' day. And that was the idea that God the judge is sitting up in heaven looking down and when somebody sins, blam! He strikes them with something, some punishment. You sin, you get this. That was the belief of the day. And the more that you suffer, that faulty theology said, the more God punishes you. Remember when Jesus' disciples said, who sinned, this man or his parents? Jesus said, neither one. God protects the righteous and punishes the wicked with diseases and other unfortunate circumstances. That was the belief of the time. Well, now I would agree that God does not protect us from the consequences of our choices. You see the difference here? I, if I smoke, God is not necessarily going to protect me from lung cancer. But he is not going to strike me with lung cancer. See the difference? In the minds of Job's three friends, Job had done something terrible to bring God's wrath down upon him in this way. Something more terrible probably than they had ever seen. And they didn't know what it was particularly, though they did take some stabs at it a little bit later. But anyway, since we have a, a bird's eye view of the situation, we know what was happening in heaven, we know, of course, that this wasn't the case, that God was not punishing Job. In fact, exactly the opposite. But Job's friend, Eliphaz, launches into a lecture at poor Job about that he needs to confess whatever he had done to God. And Eliphaz mixes some truth with his error. It always makes me laugh, you know, when people uh, try to prove something from the Bible. See? It says it right here. And they pull from one of, of Job's friends, you know. You know, you need to go back and look who's saying that and, you know, see if you really want to Say that that's Bible truth right there. <laughs> but he admonishes Job that he needs to trust God in his suffering. What's Job been doing? 
Suffering people need comfort in their suffering. They don't need a reason for their suffering. They don't need lectures on how they ought to suffer. I, I remember being at a funeral once for a dear old man um, who had lost his wife. And a well-meaning lady came up to him in the, in the foyer afterwards and said, it was God's will. You ever wanted to slap somebody even though you know you shouldn't? Maybe it was God's will, maybe it wasn't. I wouldn't have a clue. I expect it probably wasn't. But in a time of suffering, people don't need theology. They need love. They need empathy. They need someone to lean on, someone to share their pain. And Job later tells this to his friends in so many words. Miserable comforters you are. Job actually feels that his suffering is much greater than his complaints. He feels he's really doing pretty good considering the circumstances, which frankly he really was. And he repeatedly emphasizes his faith in God. Those famous words in chapter 13, 15. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. No matter what God does, I'm going to hope in him. However, as good as Job was, we can't make him out to be a total saint. Job wasn't perfect. And as his friends and Job go back and forth, Job becomes increasingly agitated and upset with his friends. And when he does so, he comes dangerously close to saying things that he knows he shouldn't in asserting his own innocence and his own integrity and even saying some things about God which for God later reproves him. And Job confesses. Even blameless Job has his unrenewed nature lurking inside of him. It's there. And he becomes somewhat irreverent and impatient toward God. At first, Job had been courageous, but he begins to give way to discouragement. Discouragement is a powerful weapon. It's like tree roots under a sidewalk, you know? You don't see them working, but eventually they buckle even reinforced concrete. Discouragement is so bad that it becomes even more difficult to deal with than the original problem that brought the discouragement. And that's what he was dealing with. And in his discouragement, Job longs for something interesting considering his time and place, or his place in time. Uh, look in, in chapter 9, verse 33. Job 9, verse 33. Job says, If only there were someone to arbitrate between us, to lay his hand upon us both, someone to remove God's rod from me so that his terror would frighten me no more, then I would speak up without fear of him, but as it now stands with me, I cannot. Job was longing for someone to arbitrate for him, someone to be his mediator. Job was longing for Jesus, wasn't he? 
Job was longing for the plan of salvation. Now, Job, living when he did, didn't have all of the prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and, and all the, the messianic prophecies that, that we had or that, that uh, David had or some of these other people had. But the legend was there about the Messiah. It may not have been quite as clear as it became later with the prophets, but Job was wishing that when judgment came from God, that when God seemed to be someone to be feared, is there ever a time that God ought to be feared? Sure there is. Job was wishing for someone to go between him and God. And in his discouragement, he didn't see how that was possible. But he shows how much he did understand of the plan of salvation later in chapter 16, verse 19. Listen to what he says. This is neat. Even now, 16, verse 19, even now, my witness is in heaven. He's starting to come out of his discouragement. My advocate is on high. My intercessor is my friend. And my eyes pour out tears to God. On behalf of a man, he pleads with God as man pleads for his friend. But even as Job begins to take courage in his suffering, his friends try to knock him back down again. They get all the more upset with him for not accepting their theology of tradition. Their, their, their popular divine punishment theology. And they seek to prove their case more. They even try to terrify Job into accepting their theology. But Job absolutely refuses to believe his friends. Job insists on seeing God as a loving redeemer rather than a harsh judge that punishes people directly for each and every sin. And, and in chapter 19, verse 25, in a note of determination, Job insists, I know that my Redeemer lives, and that in the end, He will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh, I will see God. I myself will see Him. I am not another. How my heart yearns within me. Oh, that we could say words like that in the midst of our suffering. I know that my Redeemer lives. I know that He loves me. I know that He is in control. And I know I can trust Him with my life. That's what he was saying. Job is determined to be confident that his suffering is not meaningless. Remember what I said? I don't believe that any suffering with God is gratuitous. I think God uses it all somehow. Job believes that God has a good reason for allowing what's going on, even though he doesn't know what it is. And dies not knowing what it is. His friends are convinced of his guilt. They were convinced of it even as they traveled. They went so far as to even speculate 
on some of the things that Job may have done, like mistreating orphans or, or widows or servants. They actually start to list some of these things. Job's friends, what were they doing? What's that J word? They were judging him, weren't they? They were placing themselves in the place of God and judged him. And later Job warns his friends about the way that they're judging him in, in verse, uh, chapter 19, verse 28. If you say how we will hound him since the root of the trouble lies in him, you should fear the sword yourselves, for wrath will bring punishment by the sword, and then you will know that there is judgment. He was warning them. How easy it is to judge people, especially when it comes to religion and politics, I suppose. If people don't see things our way, then they are quite definitely wrong, aren't they? That's the way it is, we think. Jesus had strong words, just like Job's, for those of us guilty of judging, which we all are. For in the same way, Matthew 7, 2, for in the same way that you judge others, you will be judged. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. The harsher you are, the harsher it will be to you. If I were Job's friends, and in a way I guess I am, I would be terrified of the implications of that statement. Job's friends had just spent days writing their own sentence. That's what it was. When we judge others, we write our own sentence. Well, the book of Job is just packed with sermon material. I mean, we could just do a whole series on this. But we can't do that today. So let me just take you to the end of the book. Job's friends try to convince Job that God is punishing him. Job refuses to believe it and defends himself. Not that he's sinless, but that he's innocent of any significant wrongdoing that he's aware of. And, and he even goes so far as to list some of the things that he knows he's innocent of, including being nice to orphans and widows and his servants and things like that. Well, eventually, all three of Job's friends fall silent. They weren't able to refute Job, and they weren't able to bring him over to their way of thinking and their theology of tradition. Well, Elihu, uh, an extra person who hasn't been mentioned before, suddenly enters the stage. He's a young man, and because of that, he's kept his mouth shut until now, out of deference to his elders. He hasn't said anything, but he's been boiling inside, you can tell. He's been wanting to say something and resisting. And Elihu goes off on a tirade for pages, condemning Job and defending God. And when Elihu finally finishes... God speaks. And it's not clear when God speaks if God was... He speaks after Elihu. And it's not clear if he was speaking just to Elihu or just to Job or, or, or all of them. I tend to think everyone, you know, the whole participants in the discussion. And I love the words God starts with. Chapter 38. Let's just go to the end of the book. Chapter 38, beginning in verse 2. Who is this who darkens my counsel 
with words without knowledge. I just love that. If he's talking to Elihu, I can definitely understand that. If he's talking to the three friends, I can definitely understand that. What about Job? Yes, I can. They were all darkening God's counsel with words without knowledge. Job's blameless, but he wasn't perfect. And he was saying things that he ought not to have said. Who is this who darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? We are human beings. When we talk about God, we darken his counsel with words without knowledge. We do it. Thankfully, for some reason, he works through us and with us anyway. But we must approach any time we speak of God with an awful lot of humility because these words are said to us. I stand up here, I think, and darken his counsel with words without knowledge. Because what do I know of God compared to what God really is? It's impossible for us not to darken his counsel with words without knowledge. Don't be so confident that you've got it all right. Because God is so far above us that we can't get it all right. But like I said, thankfully, he uses us anyway. He's told us to do it, to talk. So don't let it stop us. Just do it with humility that we have a lot to learn ourselves. Who is this who darkens my words or darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Tell me if you understand who marked off its dimensions. Surely you know. A little bit of divine sarcasm there. Who stretched the measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? Who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness? When I fixed limits for it and set its place and bars and plate, doors and bars in place? When I said, this far you may come and no farther. This is where your proud waves halt. And God just goes on and on and on, asking question after question after question. Take note. God never answers Job's questions. Job wants to know why he's suffering. God never answers his question. To this day, Job has no idea why? What God gave Job was a tiny glimpse of himself. He gave Job a theophany, a personal experience with God. And suddenly, everything that Job wanted to know, he knew. All of the questions that he had were answered in that experience with God. His questions were answered in the conviction 
He had said it before, but wasn't as convinced of it as maybe he could have been. In the conviction that God is in control, that God loves him, and that God can be trusted with his very life. And that was the thing that really Job wanted to know, even though he had been asking different questions. If you ever question God's leading in your life, if you ever wonder why you're suffering, if you ever wonder why you have health problems or wonder why you're going through this divorce or, or losing a loved one or, or, or having other discouragements, you might not ever get an answer in this life. But what you can have is a theophany. A personal experience with God. And when you have that personal experience with God, when God says to you, where were you when I did this? When you realize that God is there and you're just here. When you realize that He is in control, that He loves you, and that you can trust Him with your very life, your questions will be answered. And that's all we need to know. Because he can be trusted with our very lives. Thank you for joining Pastor Jeff Scoggins today for Worship in Spirit and Truth. We would love to hear your thoughts about the program, and your financial support is also greatly appreciated so that we can continue bringing you these kinds of programs. Tell your friends they can find the program Spirit and Truth right here on this station. Stay tuned for contact information and more details from your local station to follow. Until next time, keep your mind fixed on Jesus. This is Pastor Jeff Scoggins. Thank you for listening to Spirit and Truth. Often listeners contact me or the station wanting to know how to get a copy of a specific program or more information. All of these programs are archived as podcasts, and many of them are on video as well. You can find relevant links at my website, www.scoggins.biz. You will also find books and Bible study resources there as well. So if you didn't get to hear one of these programs all the way through or missed one in a series, you can find it by visiting scoggins.biz. That's S-C-O-G-G-I-N-S dot B-I-Z.